I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. My guest is Patricia Musum. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality and she's the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole person approach to health and well-being. And she's the author of this fabulous new book that we'll be talking about, Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace. So Trish, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to meet you and to be here with you. First off, I just want to say that I absolutely love this book. As I was reading, I was thinking, this is the book that I would have wanted to write if I was ambitious enough to try writing a book. Thank you for that compliment. And also, I loved your recurring theme that what we need most for well-being arises totally naturally out of just being and not doing, not, not taking action and also, I love the cutting-edge science that you wove into the book to help reinforce all of this. And also, what was really especially wonderful were all of the exercises that you have throughout the book that give us a direct experience of all of this. Thank you. Thank you, Tonio, for that feedback. Yeah, I, I find that teachings need to have support and we need to know how to follow them and how to get there. There's a lot of spiritual wisdom out there, but myself included, sometimes it's hard to find the path to experience that wisdom unless we have specific tools. And the book does offer up a lot of practical exercises for experiencing the teachings. And it's really tricky to talk about presence and being fully in the moment. It, it's one of those ineffable things to try to talk about. Well, it's sort of like modern physics and what Heisenberg taught us about 
traveling on the hydrogen atom, <laughs> you can't really talk about something and experience it at the same time, right? You can't see a beautiful image and take a photograph of it and experience that image at the same time. Exactly. You have to be fully immersed in the experience, which takes you completely out of the realm of observation or any kind of separation from the experience from which you could talk about it or or analyze it or think about it because they are mutually exclusive experiences. That's right. That's right. It, it goes completely beyond our thinking brains. And the same thing happens in terms of our well-being. A month ago, I interviewed another person who he coined the term restorative embodiment, in which he was talking about how um, we only heal when we're in that embodied state of what he called restoration, which is equivalent to being fully immersed in the present moment and having our parasympathetic nervous system activated as opposed to being in uh, sympathetic mode and that we don't heal in sympathetic mode and the parasympathetic mode is a pretty rare experience you know during our day-to-day -day, uh, functioning in this world yeah that's right that's beautifully put and i like that concept of restorative embodiment. It is absolutely true and it's scientifically supported and the ancient wisdoms of all the global healing traditions of which we're aware speaks to that notion as well that we need to be in a state of rest for healing to happen. And another thing that I really loved about the book is the way you opened it up with Rumi's poem, The Guest House. I would love for you to talk about the significance of that poem. And in a sense, that poem really underpins everything in your book in a way. And that poem itself could be used to address everything. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you found that poem meaningful. The poem has a particular personal meaning for me and then it has a particular role in the book as well, in terms of its message, at least how I interpret its message. I, uh, I happened upon that poem in the middle of a sleepless night when I was awake, feeling worried and confused about just what this book would be. It was yet an idea soon to become a proposal, but many, many steps away from a book proposal, let alone a book. And that book literally, after I got up out of bed and walked to my office area and to my bookshelves, that book literally fell off the shelf and opened to that poem. And that was uh, fuel and inspiration for me and led me to what is the central theme of the book that is really about surrendering to all that is and welcoming it in which is how I interpret that poem. The guest house is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for allowing all that is into our guest house, if you will, no matter how difficult or challenging or painful it may feel. 
And it's also a real place, as I describe in the book, a place where we can surrender to be taken care of. Because as we spoke of a little earlier, it's in the being, not the doing, that all that we need for whatever's going on arises. It's in the being, not the doing, that healing happens. It's in the being, not the doing, that we get clear solutions arrive to issues we may be not sure of. And in what I call inspired action arises. So the guest house is a metaphor and a real place where readers can enter to surrender to be taken care of. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to struggle, toil, try, act, or do. They can surrender to the present moment. And that's where everything that we need happens and where we end up being taken care of. So when you say that the guest house is a real place, you're referring to it being home for us, our, our true home. Yes, that's, that's it. It's our true home. And there's a line that I remember in the book, or maybe you were quoting something. You said that all sickness is homesickness. Yes, yes. That's a lovely quote from a woman named Diane Connolly who is a scholar and practitioner of traditional acupuncture, specifically five-element acupuncture. And she's written a book with that title, All Sickness is Homesickness, and how it's the process of returning home that is our way to healing. And I just love that metaphor, and it connected for me to the the meaning that I found in that guest house. And that guest house is being a place that we can call home. And getting there is where we find our way to well-being. Mm -hmm. And the secret to getting there is right in that poem as well. Yes. That kind of magical, alchemical premise of inviting in everything. Right. Because we have to really learn how to work with all of those things and to be fully present in our own true home, which is the present moment. We have to be able to allow and even greet, you know, willingly and openly and and lovingly greet everything, all the guests that arise. So tell us a bit about the range of those guests that that come knocking on our doors. <laughs> well, you know, Rumi describes them as varied. Rumi describes those guests as a joy. And I'm actually looking at the poem right now and I'm, I'm reading a bit from it. Rumi describes those guests as a joy, a depression, a meanness, all unexpected visitors, a crowd of sorrows, violently sweep our house empty of its furniture, maybe a dark thought, maybe shame, maybe malice. And he says we need to meet them all at the door laughing and invite them in. And what I love is how he closes. And he says, be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So that's how he sees those visitors. My interpretation of the poem in the context of my book is that those visitors that we may be hesitant to invite in, we may be hesitant to be present with, are 
the difficulties, the challenges that we experience navigating being human, the challenges we experience navigating living in a physical body, the challenges we experience navigating the field of emotions, the challenges we experience navigating circumstances and situations in our lives. So I invite that whatever we are feeling challenged by, whatever is causing us suffering, whether it's a physical dis-ease or disease or bodily symptoms, whether it's dis-ease of the psyche, whether it's challenges in our lives, we invite them in, we be present with them, we surrender to experiencing them fully and what's coming up around us for them fully. And that is how we find our way to that place of home that is what I call absolute health, and that's essentially inner peace. And you also say that absolute health is not necessarily about physical disease and pain, and that it really doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our physical bodies even. Yeah, I I talk a bit about healing and I go into a bit of detail about just what healing is. It's not what we typically think of it in the Western medical paradigm. Healing or curing is usually considered the absence of a symptom or sign of disease or disease for a certain amount of time. But I like to think of healing as a return home to this place that I call absolute health, which is peace of mind. And that healing, that place of inner peace, that may not end up bringing us or returning us to improved health in our physical body, although it may very well. It may return us to improved state of physical health, but it may not. Healing may be a return to the physical body to return state of physical health, or it may be a departure from it. It may be a leaving our body. It may be dying. So this isn't a notion that I'm sure many people are comfortable with, given our Western culture's tendency to verbalize illness, dying, and death, and certainly the Western medical culture's tendency to do so. But I offer up that If we can find our way to inner peace, and it's absolutely by surrendering to presence that we do, it's going to return us to our body more readily if we're meant to go in that direction. And if we're meant to leave our bodies, it's only going to happen with ease and with equanimity. So no matter what's going on, healing is our way home, not necessarily to the physical body, but to a state of well-being irrespective of what's going on in our physical body. What's important to note also is that, as you mentioned earlier, healing doesn't happen unless we're in a state of parasympathetic nervous system innervation. The body won't heal if the mind and the body are not in a state of peace. So there's much greater likelihood that we can improve our physical health, improve our well-being if we cultivate this experience of inner peace or parasympathetic innervation or what I call absolute health. So in our culture, it seems you know most people do not practice any form of meditation or not aware of the power of breath to bring us into parasympathetic mode. Um, I think for most people, sleep is the only state where 
peeling can happen and many people do not sleep well at all. That's so true. Our culture doesn't support the notion that rest is primary and that sleep is essential. And our culture honors doing an activity as opposed to being <laughs> not doing. So we don't really facilitate our rest time, our parasympathetic rest time in our lifestyles. I have um, a notion that I call the four primary medicines and lifestyle is one of those medicines and how we go about our days, how we move through the day and the night. And yeah, our culture doesn't readily accommodate that, especially if you're a New Yorker like I am. Um, and our medical training, my medical training certainly didn't accommodate those notions either. Yeah, it's interesting that you don't learn that in medical school and yet it's so essential. Yeah. Well, it's not built into the fabric of the curriculum. I will say that medical education has developed over the years. I won't say it's radically transformed, which I believe it's really needing a sea change, but it's developed over the years and that there are now courses and exposure for students to practices that aren't traditionally considered conventional medicine and Students are exposed to among those uh, concepts such as mindfulness and meditation and, and other healing traditions like Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. But it's not built into the fabric of the curriculum. So it's not part of the armamentarium, if you will. And it really is an armamentarium that we learn um, to be really to be highly skilled technicians in the management of the physical body. We're basically auto mechanics for the physical body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, using outer interventions and active sympathetic interventions to try and address health and healing. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good point what you just said, but because our interventions end up being often sympathetic nervous system stimulating. In other words, we create a lot of fear in our culture of Western medicine around illness, dying, and death, and often how we relate to our patients, what we do to our patients, because we're often doing to our patients rather than partnering with them. Um, we can generate a lot of fear, and fear is a risk factor for illness. Fear can keep us sick and get us sick. So yes, much of what we do keeps us in that sympathetic mode that we need to be in if we need to be active, alert, and vigilant. As I mentioned, I'm a New Yorker, and if I'm crossing the street, I need to have that system turned on so I can be mindful of a taxi that might be about to jump a red light or be mindful of an aggressive dog coming my way. But we have it on more often than not, and the way we approach health and healthcare and managing, really managing disease, symptoms, signs, et cetera, in Western medicine is we really tend to stimulate or keep that sympathetic system on. We also think of, as I mentioned, illness, dying, and death is bad. So we create an environment of fear around it. And we promote the notion that we should fight disease. We should fight the illness. We should fight the diagnosis. And that's a sympathetic response. And that creates a disconnect from what our body's really needing. 
because we're fighting, we're actually creating literally physiologic stress in the body. And we'll be aggravating. We won't be inhibiting. We'll be aggravating whatever's going on in the body. Yeah, that's that's such a important dynamic to be aware of when we approach our own healing or any physical conditions that we might be dealing with. So you started working with an unusual scientist during your third year medical school. Could you tell us about that? Yes, I was very interested in Chinese medicine and in particular, a Chinese medical healing practice called Qigong. I became interested in it through my study of physics in college and also through my study and exposure to Eastern philosophy, Eastern mysticism, and some of the writers at the time who were comparing and contrasting modern physics to Asian philosophy. So I was very interested in this practice. I believed, <laughs> I believed, and belief can be dangerous, that it had some validity, and I wanted to explore it using the tools of science. Anything can be studied, no matter how out there it may seem to the dominant worldview. We can study anything. And I literally happened upon this wonderful, amazing, open-minded scientist during the first week of my third year of medical school, kind of serendipitously, I was doing a surgery rotation and I was talking to my teachers, the, the attending doctors, about Chinese medicine and Qigong. And they said, oh, you have to go meet so-and-so. So I went and met so-and-so. His name was Dr. Arthur Pilla. He's no longer with us in, in his body today, but he was absolutely fascinated, intrigued, and open-minded, and invited me into his lab to run any and all experiments that I wanted to, to explore this phenomenon of Qigong, as well as some other practices. I was also particularly interested in homeopathy and in exploring the basic science, physical, chemical properties of homeopathic remedies, if that might lend some light into their biological relevance. And there had been some research by biophysicists in that arena before, which led me to consider doing that. So I just played in his lab for all of my elective time during my third and fourth years of medical school. And I learned much about healing from the practitioners whom I brought into the lab as well. And it was probably what got me through medical school with my sanity intact because the rest of my education felt very limiting and restricting. And I'd chosen medical school as a path. It was a means to an end. I already had interests in being engaged in working towards a more expansive paradigm in health and healing. And so medical school was a means to an end. And here I was in my third year starting my clinical rotations, which for listeners, the third and fourth years, if you're not familiar with, is when we go from the books to the people. So we start working in the hospital with people. And I spent all of my elective time in that lab and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience and really was fundamental in shaping, among many other experiences as well, but very, very important in shaping how I continued to 
pursue research and be a seeker of all things beyond medicine, shall we say. I would love for you to talk about some of the scientific basis that you discovered along the way to support this this approach to healing that, that you write about in this book. That is a great question, and it requires a very, very long answer. So I'll, I'll try to, let's see, I'll try to summarize. So first of all, this essential tenet that we discussed earlier of being versus doing, of surrendering versus acting, of being present, um, this tenet is, is supported by the simple science of the nervous system. When we stop to be present, when we slow down to pause, when we let go of what we're holding in our thinking brains, we toggle on that parasympathetic nervous system. Now, there are various tools that can help us to do that. Breathing, you mentioned, is one of them. But when we toggle on that parasympathetic nervous system, it sets us up to be in the stage for rest, repair, and healing, as well as digestion and sleeping if that's what we're needing. So that's the simple science of how being present, letting go of what thoughts and emotions and attachment to our physical body may be keeping us stuck. Um, When we can be present, when we can surrender to experiencing what we're experiencing in the moment, we release what's being held in our body somatically. Now, there also is a wide body of research on the arena that we call currently mind-body medicine on the relationship between thoughts, feelings, and the physical body. That research has been well-documented by the tools of Western science, and it's in the conventional mainstream literature, although that literature doesn't really trickle down into clinical practice fully, and it doesn't trickle down into the curriculum, actually. But there is a wide body of research that describes the relationship between thoughts, feelings, and the physical body, and how thoughts and feelings can literally make us sick, and they can make us well. There have been studies looking at immune function, digestive function, cardiovascular function, neurologic function, every system of the body in Western medicine, contrary to non-Western global healing traditions like Chinese medicine, we divide the body into parts and systems. So in our system, we've got great research that documents the relationship of thoughts and feelings, mind to body, with every aspect of our body. So I don't know if you want me to go into more detail. I could describe a couple of clinical studies if you like. I think that would be great because I really want to make this as accessible as possible to my listeners. Sure, sure. Well, one researcher that comes to mind who's been doing this for many, many years is cardiologist Dean Ornish. And Dean Ornish did some pioneering research way back when in the 90s. It may have been a bit earlier that looked at the relationship of lifestyle to cardiovascular disease. And he looked at people who had coronary artery disease and who required conventional interventions. And he investigated a group of individuals 
and study them over time, who rather than having the traditional intervention, he offered what he called lifestyle changes. And those included diet, meditation, yoga, community, a community of sharing where people could talk about feelings. And the outcome of this study, which led to many, many more studies in this arena, was that those patients who worked to chant, I shouldn't use the word work because it didn't work. It was easier than fighting. Those patients who made changes in how they lived their lives actually had reversal in the coronary artery disease on imaging studies, which was quite remarkable. They were able to reverse their coronary artery disease with lifestyle changes alone. And getting back to the notion of thoughts and feelings and mind and body, what Ornish found was most significant was of all the factors that they looked at, at diet, lifestyle, mindfulness, meditation, and group sharing, it was the group sharing, the ability to talk about feelings, that was the most potent factor, the most potent variable for those people in changing their physical bodies and their physiology. He's since done similar types of studies with men with prostate cancer, similar outcomes. There is more recently one of a number of studies that are looking at what we call in the field emotional acceptance. There is a study back in 2016 of women with breast cancer. The women were divided into two groups. One group was told to fight the cancer. It's a bad thing. Try to fight it. Do everything you can to get this out of your body. The other group was asked to be present and given opportunities to express all the feelings that were coming up around their diagnosis, the status of their physical health, whether those feelings were despair, hopelessness, anger, anxiety, whatever they were, they were given tools to express their feelings. And at the end of the study, the group that was asked to be present with feelings, was given opportunities to explore and allow their feelings, that group had improved health outcomes, fewer symptoms of sickness, and improved findings on various laboratory studies. So here the take-home message was being present with feelings, no matter how difficult they were, contributed to health and well-being. So again, they moved from a place of dis-ease to ease by being present with what was coming up rather than fighting, avoiding, resisting. That's another very important study, and there have been a number since then. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what you accomplish with the many exercises in the book, is, is actually getting people to actually engage in that process within themselves. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's not always so easy. It's, it's not a process that even for myself is, is something that we're inclined to do unless we have a practice of cultivating self-awareness. We're hardwired to be sensitive and respond to the scary stuff, if you will, <laughs> to the saber-toothed tigers of our evolutionary ancestry. We're hardwired to 
be aware and sensitive to and respond to anxiety. And yeah, so I offer tools to allow us to slow down, to be present with what we may be hardwired to react to and act from rather than to sit with. And it's the sitting with it that allows it to shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so profound. I had a, an experience of that last night <laughs> at like three in the morning. I had a rare bout of uh, you know waking up with a kind of anxiety, which is very unusual for me. And I really struggled with it for a while. And, and then I, I found my way in through doing some belly breathing and allowing myself to be really present with it. Mm. And, and at first it was, it wasn't working, but I just stuck with it and remembered that, okay, if it's not working, just be present with how it's not working. That's beautifully said, Tonio. Thank you so much for sharing that personal experience because that's exactly, exactly what we need to do is to be present with whatever's going on. Even if it's not working, that's something else to be present with. I love that. Thank and then you. it worked. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You surrendered to it not working and then it worked. Yeah. Yeah. It's so ironic how that works. I mean, yeah. it's very paradoxical and yet I've experienced that over and over again, and I've worked with numerous different practices that work with that same principle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would love for you to talk about the power of the mind in this and how the mind is actually the most powerful medicine and how everything, you said everything is an inside job. Well, I think of the mind as the hard drive if you will and everything else is the software if we make a computer analogy so the mind sets the template whatever's going on in our consciousness what's ever going on thoughts and feelings that instantaneously affects our entire being is ineffably linked in fact there's no separation we talk about mind body medicine but there's really no distinction they are they are a one and the mind is omnipotent. Uh, I don't know how much more I can say about that. If you want me to go into the science of it all, I, I spend a bit of time in one chapter describing just how powerful the mind is when I discuss the various research on consciousness, the robust field of parapsychology, the mind that can work apparent miracles and defies our understanding of space and time and matter and its apparent magical doings. But yes, the mind is our most powerful medicine. Placebo research supports that. Parapsychology supports that. Consciousness research supports that. The studies of near-death research and other consciousness research studies supports that. That is indeed our most powerful medicine. But we haven't always been able to or understood that. And we haven't known how to use it as our most powerful medicine. In fact, sometimes it can be a bitter pill <laughs> that doesn't work as good medicine. It can, we can use it in ways that don't allow it to do its beautiful, brilliant, magical work. Right. The mind can be like a, a double-edged sword. It can, it can cut both ways. Absolutely. Very well put. Yeah. It can be either our healer or our slayer. I believe Edgar Casey said that. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is all extremely fascinating stuff. I have been utterly fascinated by this for decades. I'd say about 30 years ago after a really devastating breakup. It's interesting how <laughs> things like that can actually trigger life-changing shifts in direction. And I came across two amazing books in the library. One was The Holographic Universe and the other was The Power of the Subconscious Mind. And what you write about in your book really integrates all of that into a really beautiful synthesis. So what you're talking about isn't really new, but the way you put it all together, I thought was so beautifully done. Tonio, thank you. That means a lot to me. I, I know your history from reading about you. <laughs> so that means a lot to me. It's also something that I needed to be able to synthesize and put together for myself, a way of inhabiting fully my own journey and everything that's brought me to where I am now and, and taught me what I understand now and continues to teach me about the nature of reality, about the nature of being human. So the book was for me a healing and a homecoming of sorts because it allowed me to really put it all together in a way that made sense and makes sense for me. And, and hope, hopefully it will make sense and be helpful to my readers. I think anybody who's open-minded enough to actually read it and stay with it would get so much out of it. And it's, it's still quite a challenge, even for people like us who, who are fascinated by this and, and very open-minded that we still have to struggle against this. I mean, the, the term mainstream is like so metaphorically applicable because there's this, this huge, powerful current that we are literally swimming against in bringing this kind of understanding into the, the actual direct practice of our lives. Yes. It does feel like that at times to me, that we are swimming against a current of that dominant narrative. But I'd also like to think that perhaps we can rise above the river, so to speak, or the sea, or, or get out of the water and come from another place, perhaps another dimension. It may be getting a bit woo-woo for some people, but I believe that what's needed will come from another level layer dimension of perspective if you will that we can't swim against the current and expect the current to ease up for us or the current to reverse directions which it does sometimes but i think that it doesn't ultimately have to be a struggle i feel like that very much of the time but in my own personal practices i do experience moments and more than moments of optimism and hope that there will be and there is a true sea change and a transformation that's occurring. I see that in the younger medical students that are becoming doctors who come into the education, even though the curriculum hasn't changed, with so much information and so much knowledge about other ways of healing and other ways of thinking about health. So there's a new generation in Western medicine the system hasn't yet accommodated, hasn't stretched, hasn't expanded. But I think in time, I'm hopeful. And when I was talking about that, that mainstream that we're swimming against, 
I was also referring to how that mainstream is actually very much embodied in our own minds, in our own programming and conditioning that we have been subject to for, you know, for most of our lives. Yes, yes, that's so true. And I, I have to say that I experienced that myself too. You know, I wrote this book, it was a healing of sorts, but I, I need to continue to walk my talk and <laughs> and practice what I preach and follow the teachings. And some days and some moments it's easier and I, I smoothly experience that. And other days I have to stop and pause and do so. So mm-hmm. it is navigating, truly navigating being human in an environment that has accultured us and programmed us to live and think and be and act in certain ways. So it it requires cultivating a self-awareness and a bearing witness to that, to stop and pause. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that you say and, and many others have said is that our healer is actually within us. So a logical question that arises from that is what is the role of the outer healer or practitioner and how can we work with them in a way that that is most beneficial i like to think of the role of the outer healer or practitioner as a teacher and a guide but ultimately a partner not a director And that inner healer that lies within, that inner healer directs us to any and all outer healers or healing partnerships that we may need to engage or develop. And that inner healer speaks to us when we slow down and visit that place of quiet, that place of stillness, that place of peace, where answers arise so we we may very well partner with western physicians with alternative holistic practitioners body workers whomever we partner with they are truly partners and they are healing partners because they facilitate that process of returning us to that place that the guest host describes to that place of home that is absolute health or inner peace. They help our body, mind, spirit, if you will, for those who accommodate the notion of a spirit essence. They help to allow our beings to enter a place of peace where healing happens. And that may involve, again, a surgery or a medication or an acupuncture needle or cranial sacral therapist or a homeopath or a qigong practitioner or play or laughter or singing or dancing but if it's an outer practitioner as you describe that person is a partner optimally that person needs to be a partner and not partnered with a practitioner that can impede our healing in fact not infrequently i don't want to say often but not infrequently Physician-patient relationships are hierarchical, less empowering, maybe not empowering at all. And they don't allow us to feel like we're in charge. 
And that can be quite disempowering and that can impede our healing. That literally creates stress, dis-ease in our beings. So how can we be a better partner in that partnership? Well, I think the first and most important step is to choose wisely those whom we partner with. And again, here, the answers lie within in terms of whom we choose to partner with. We most feel comfortable with whom we can feel honored, heard, whom we can communicate freely with, whom we feel respected by. Now, I'll share an interesting story. I had for many years uterine tumors, and I used all sorts of holistic and alternative approaches to healing them. I shrunk them to one-third their size at one point, but they grew back. Long story short, I ended up having surgery for my uterine tumors, and I was very, very opposed to having a male surgeon because I had a very traumatic experience early on in my life with a male obstetrician gynecologist. And again, long story short, I ended up having a male surgeon after consulting with several female doctors who were really horrific in how they interacted with me. One of them, while I was on the examining table, exclaimed something like, oh my God, these are huge. You're crazy for not, you know, taking this medicine or or getting them out, blah, 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 blah. Another one whom I consulted with similarly reacted with a lot of just what I consider really inappropriate way to, to interact with, with a patient. And even though I was a physician, you know, I was really left feeling very groundless, very confused, very angry, very anxious, very unsupported, very unempowered. So anyhow, I ended up finding out about this male surgeon and I was told about him by a friend of mine whom I went to med school with. And she said, well, we all hated him because he never let us operate. You know, he just let us watch. He didn't let us operate. When you're doing surgery and OBGYN as a surgical rotation, you have to practice, you have to learn. Unfortunately, that's what we do when we're in medical school and residency. We practice to learn. So anyhow, long story short is I ended up seeing this man and this backtrack a little bit, both of the female doctors I saw said I needed to have a total hysterectomy, that that was the only solution. I was in my early 40s. And I saw this man. He was a little bit older than them. He was in his early 60s. And he says, okay, I will do this for you. I will just take out the tumors and leave everything else intact. You don't need to have a total hysterectomy. You may not want children, but you know I'm not going to take away that opportunity just in case you do. And what was remarkable was I had the surgery with him. I also used homeopathy before and after the surgery. I also used acupuncture, press pins, and magnets during the surgery, both of which he was totally fine with. And it was a remarkably empowering experience. And it was a lesson in suspending my preconceived notions because of my past history. And it was a lesson in my appreciating how empowering a, a true healing partnership could be. Mm-hmm. There's a few different directions I could go in, but since you brought up homeopathy and other non-conventional therapies, um, I've encountered 
a number of people in my own community who are scientifically minded and they over and over again assert that homeopathy is total quackery and that there's no science to back it up and they're very closed-minded and this is a very prevalent attitude towards non-conventional therapies in our culture and in our medical community. Yes, indeed it is. And in fact, it is tremendously unscientific to make such a statement about homeopathy, to make such a blanket statement. There is, in fact, a wide body, again, here, of very robust science that supports the phenomenon of homeopathy. There's both basic science, which is experiments in test tubes and with animals, and there's clinical science, that means with people, supporting the practice as biologically and clinically relevant, meaning that in spite of these apparently non-molecular, non-material doses of substances, they are biologically relevant and biologically active. Now, in spite of the science, we don't learn about that in our clinical studies in Western medicine. It doesn't trickle down into Western medicine. And there are a number of reasons for this. And those reasons have to do with politics and economics and what I call scientific bias or prejudice. So first of all, the politics and economics of it is such that Homeopathy is very cheap, very inexpensive to make. It can't be patented. So there's no financial incentive to pursue homeopathy from a pharmaceutical perspective. Although, ironically, there are some pharmaceutical companies that make what are called combination homeopathic remedies. Those can be patented. The other issue is that in spite of this research, in spite of this robust literature, both in basic science, and this basic scientist is done by PhD scientists in immunology and toxicology and pharmacology and basic microbiology, people who are very, very specialized in their fields. They actually don't even call it homeopathy research. They call it low-dose research or highly dilute research. They do research with substances that are highly dilute such as homeopathic remedies are. But the problem is their literature is not read by the medical community. There are disciplines that don't communicate with one another. In fact, this is an issue all across the board in medical, clinical literature, and in science today, and really forever it's been an issue, that we don't read the journals of specialties outside of our own disciplines. And we certainly don't read the journals of immunologists and toxicologists that are studying low-dose research. It just doesn't happen. So we're not informed. We're not educated. Just the way we're not informed to understand the research that supports these notions of consciousness and such, we're not informed about this research. So again, it's, it's very unscientific to make such a statement because there is a wide body of science supporting homeopathy as well as many alternative therapies. That science is published in the specialty journals of the scientists I mentioned, as well as in peer-reviewed journals in homeopathy, in quote, integrative medicine or complementary medicine. There are a number of such journals that 
are have been founded by and are boarded by and peer reviewed by more open minded scientists and physicians. So that's a that's a big issue that I have. <laughs> it's a big pet peeve. So the politics and economics and scientific bias, and I write about this in, in one of my final chapters, these all influence the viable healthcare options that we are exposed to as consumers of healthcare, if you will. They completely influence the options available to us to be well-informed so we can be well-empowered to make choices that best support our health and our well-being. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to some of the tools that you use in your healing approach. One of them is mirror work, which I'm not really familiar with. Could you talk about that and how it works? Yes. Mirror work is a technique that involves looking at oneself in the mirror, literally, and speaking to that mirror. Speaking to the mirror as if one is speaking to oneself or to someone else. And we're not talking about like standing in the bathroom looking in the mirror that way. No, the way I teach it in the book is to use a handheld mirror and to be as comfortable as one possibly can, which is what I suggest for all the exercises, and to just talk to the mirror, tell the mirror what's coming up for you. I give specific exercises on different types of conversations to have. It might be a conversation with ourselves. It might be with a conversation with somebody else, but it's a way to use verbal, you know, use verbal communication to release what we're holding in the body to express ourselves, to communicate what's going on internally. can be especially helpful if we're having a challenge in a relationship and we need to express what we're feeling to talk to the mirror as if we're talking to that person. So it's, it's sort of like an added dimension to journaling. Yeah, that's a nice analogy. Yeah. Why do you have us cover our eyes with our palms after doing many of these exercises? Simply because it's a way of grounding and returning to what we were doing before with ease and quiet, and it's relaxing for the eyes. If we open the eyes, Suddenly, we're assaulted with many, 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 many millions of visual stimuli. We take in a lot of energy visually. It's a lot of information from the brain. So these exercises are slowing us down, bringing us to a place of calm, bringing us to a place of ease. It's just a nice, easy, gentle way to ease out of that gently and calmly by bringing the eyes back to the world around them just slowly. And physically, when we rest our palms on our eyes, we literally relax what are called the extraocular muscles. Those are the muscles all around the eyes that work to move our eyes up and down and left and right and around. So we're, we're creating a little mini massage for those muscles just by putting pressure on them, gentle pressure. Mm -hmm. In our culture, we tend to go kind of violently from one mode to another without any consideration for our inner state, the state of our nervous system, which is, is so important, so essential in all of this. 
Yes, that's beautifully put. And it's by becoming more aware and developing an exquisite awareness of the state of our nervous system. We can allow it to gently ebb and flow as it needs to. And in fact, we become intolerant and we accommodate stimuli because we've accommodated ourselves to them without listening to the ebbing and the flowing of our nervous system's needs, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when we do that, when we actually attend to the exquisite, subtle state of our nervous system, that can actually change our relationship to the world around us and and our life in general, the way we approach life. Absolutely. Absolutely. As in lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Sure. And you say, you know, what we take in, how we live, how we connect, and what moves us, and getting really in touch with what really most deeply moves us. Right. Right. Yeah, you just described our four primary medicines. And there's a sort of paradox with that idea of what moves us in relation to just being. Talking about what moves us sort of implies activity. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a bit about that seemingly apparent paradox? Sure, sure. What I mean by what moves us, I call that purpose. What moves us? What is our life force? What floats our boat? What makes our heart sing? What moves us? What drives us? I call that one of the four primary medicines, which is purpose. Purpose is medicine. So, well, in fact, it may seem paradoxically that it involves moving or doing in some element, but in fact, it doesn't. It's about what is our life force? What are we passionate about? What is our purpose? What are we here for? And we find that purpose by being present, being still again by going within, not by acting, doing, struggling, trying to figure it out. That comes to us from that place of stillness. And that place of stillness may move us to express what moves us. But again, it arises from a place of being, not doing. It's like the jazz musician who improvises and the jazz musician who practices an improvisation. One is flowing naturally. The other is coming from a place of trying and struggle. Mm -hmm. And life is like that. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to add that it's okay wherever we are, you know, it's okay wherever we are. If we're struggling, if we're trying, if we're trying, if we're toiling, if we're efforting, it's okay. The key is to finding a way to cultivate self-awareness around it all so we can stop and take a pause and breathe from that and have moments of pause and stillness where we can enter that place of equanimity and peace from which and from where all arises so not to judge or belabor the these elements as negative or undesirable they're aspects of our humanness just the way our minds can be monkey minds we may be driven and fueled by doing urges it's the nature of our 
primal brain and to be gentle with that as well, no shoulds, but to embrace it with acceptance and cultivate that self-awareness around it all. Mm-hmm. And again, this returns us to what you described as the power of the mind when we talked about that, the power of the mind to use itself to observe itself, to cultivate that self-awareness, to create opportunities for it to be in an optimal place <laughs> for manifesting all that it can do so miraculously. And the choices it can make between accepting all of the impulses that arise in us, whether we judge them or value them, the mind can make the choice of making peace with with all those things, as in greeting all of the guests that arrive at our door. Yes, that was beautifully put. Yes. I've been speaking with Patricia Musum. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality. She's the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole person approach to health and well-being. And she's the author of this wonderful book that we've been talking about, Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace. Trish, it's been an absolute delight to talk with you. Tonio, thank you so much for having me. It's been a really fascinating and stimulating conversation. And the future never comes. What? And the future never comes. What comes is always here now. And because of your habit of worrying about the future, you will waste that moment also for worry. And because of your habit of worrying about the future, you will waste that moment also for worry. One now, another now, wherever you are, it will be here and now. One now, another now, only one moment. It is a city.
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. And together, let's create a wonderful new year.